My guest today is Ray Martin, who was the CEO of First Place Consulting, which became one of the top 100 UK consultancy firms. Uh, Ray actually went on to become the uh, Daily Telegraph Business Leader of the Year in 2002, but a couple of years later decided to make a huge change and leave all of that behind and stick on a backpack and decide to head off around the world for six months. That six months soon became 14 years. And in this podcast today, he's going to share what those 14 years and that experience felt like, why he did it. This is a lovely, lovely podcast. You're going to enjoy this. So I suppose one of the things that I'm really interested in, Ray, is oh God, I just loved the book. I loved the book and I read it right through from, from when I opened it. I just kept with it. Um, Tell it was, me more. It, what, was it, what, what made you say you loved it? What was, what was it about it? That you well, I, I wasn't sure now uh, before. And you know when some people say, I wrote a book and uh, they have sort of a downloadable PDF about something that, remember years ago, people used to do it all the time. They'd have a book and you go, that's not really a book, <laughs> but yours is a real book. So when I... I started to read it and um, I just got so invested in your journey because I could feel your anxieties when there was moments when you go, oh no, this, like we, in the book, you talk about relationships. You also talk about closing the company and sort of just stepping out onto the unknown. It's like standing on a cliff and then doing a skydive off and not knowing what's next. I suppose at the very start of the book, when you had all the safety of everything that was around you and you could have quite easily plod along with the experience that you had, like with all the successes and all that kind of stuff. And the company was doing very well in life in London, but you didn't, you did the opposite. And you didn't go for just, I've, I've done that where I jumped off and I went off for two months traveling around South Africa and Australia. And uh, I actually found a card from my daughter as well. She gave it to me. I think it was, must've been around Father's Day or, or sometime like that, or my birthday of that year. And she said, um, I love you dad lots, but I hate you because you're heading off for two months and I won't have you around. And she was younger at the time. So I went for two months thinking I was dead brave. You went for 14 years. <laughs> so I, I never planned to, but I did. <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it's, it's all those different moments when you could have easily just went, listen, forget it. I've done two and a half years. I'm going home. Let's go back to the comfort. And do it. But you didn't. Yeah. So tell me about the Ray before we even got to the point of you deciding that you were going to. So before you even got to 43 and the consultancy company was doing well. Well, I think I, I saw myself very much as a sort of the typical mainstream guy, you know, like I'd been raised as a child quite well by my loving parents and led to believe that success in life meant getting a good job and a house and a wife and kids and a mortgage and all of the things. And so I never, ever questioned that conventional wisdom. I just went along with that plan until I've literally found myself married with a house and a great wife and and then sort of bit by bit realizing, actually, I'm not sure this is the life I really, really want. <laughs> Those thoughts used to trouble me because I could never admit them. You know, whenever I tried to voice them, even just to myself, I'd get this other voice going, come on, you're really lucky to have such a great life and a good income. You can't complain about this. It's not right. It's not fair. You know, just count yourself lucky. And sort of, so I consoled myself and sort of said, yeah, it's not. I can't really speak out of turn. It's... It's not really the life I kind of dream of, but it's better than a lot of people's. And um, and so I was sort of stuck in that place for quite a long time, but it was getting worse and worse and worse, <laughs> you know, and I was finding it harder and harder to, to actually stay in that life, but not knowing either how to break out of it. And I, I never really did take full ownership for that, I don't think, to be honest, until the day that my ex-wife now, but my wife said, I'm leaving you and I'm leaving the company. And that, 
that made it impossible to ignore, you know, just made it impossible to really stay in that place any longer. Yeah, but you'd built up a really big, uh, very successful consulting firm you had, uh, First Place Consulting. My my motto in life was, if you're going to do anything, do it to the absolute best of your ability. You know, really, I've been taught to apply myself, you know, really, really well. And so I, I applied myself to the job of being a CEO of the business I was running, and I did it to the absolute best of my ability. And even though it wasn't in my heart what I truly sort of thought my life was about, I still want to do it the best I can. I love this. And I, and I want to paint a sort of picture for the people listening. So you developed this really um, successful, the top 100 consulting firms in the UK. In first place consulting, you'd won this award at Daily Telegraph around about 2002, was it? That where you'd become yet yeah, business leader of the year, which is an, an incredible accolade. So you, ha- you, you had all the successes. I'm, I presume there was uh, you know, the money with that, the life in London and everything that people aspire to. And and then suddenly at some stage, and you just explained the catalyst there that you decided that maybe I wasn't living the life or the dream that I wanted. Well, it was it was a bit like um, when my business partner, Charlotte, who I was married to as well, when she said, I, I, I'm exiting your life now, it was quite sudden, but she was such a huge part of my life. I mean, in terms of my personal life and my business life, both. And it was devastating. And it was really devastating. I mean, I thought, I can't continue on this path unexamined i've got to really take a deep look and go how did i arrive at this moment when my whole life's constructed around this relationship and now that relationship's gone and i describe it in the book as saying it's a bit like going on stage when you're the support actor in a big scene with the lead actor and you're halfway through the scene you're acting and they suddenly run off the stage and you're just left on stage on your own with the audience jaw dropping mouth open waiting for you to say something and there's nothing happening and so i i knew i needed to change the life i had and then a very unforeseen event happened i think if you've read the book you'll know i went to australia and i acted in a play and i hadn't foreseen that at all but what that did was it suddenly made me aware i had a massive insight afterwards that i'd been for three months being a character in this plan developing this character and when i was returning to england I was going to be another character, but this time it was me, Ray, the businessman. And I never, I'd never seen myself as a character that I'd actually constructed until that moment when I did the play. And then I realized I could write that character out of my actual story. I could cease that storyline and start a new series. One of the catalysts I found in the book too, as well, was also the death of your father a short while later too, as well. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, my dad was a sort of, I'd describe him, he was a very kind man, but very down-to-earth, simple. He grew up in post-war London, wasn't really educated, but always helped people and loved to travel. You know, his fantasy was to sort of do as much traveling as possible. He never lived long enough, probably, to do as much as he would have liked. He died when he was 73. But he always used to say to me, Ray, why are you working so hard? I mean, you know, why don't you take some time off and go traveling? You know, he always used to say, because me and Charlotte, we worked really, really, really hard to make our business successful seven days a week you know and it always always sort of laughed it off but it always went in that message and then so when this bomb crater appeared with charlotte leaving and my dad passing away and everything changing i was out of my marriage my home my business within three months um i thought yeah there's something to that message i perhaps this is a good time i I don't know why i thought that stephen but when I was at his funeral, I suddenly had thoughts coming into my mind. 
I wonder how many days my dad lived. I don't don't know why I was thinking that, but I was. So when I got home, I got my calculator out. He was 73. And it worked out he'd lived for 27,300 days or something. And I looked at that number on a piece of paper. 27,000 days. His entire life from being a a toddler to, to his death. I thought, that doesn't sound like a very long time, 27,000 days. I thought, I wonder how long my life's going to be. And of course, I don't know. No one does. But the government and the financial institutions track the ages very, very closely because they have to make predictions about how much their pensions are going to cost. So clearly, they're working on models that are very accurate. They have to. So I got some research data and turned out that the, the mortality age of men in England was 80, which is 29,200 days. So I wrote down 29,200 days on a piece of paper. And I thought, how many days have I had? I worked it out, took those off. And then I took a, a couple of years at the end of my life because I'd be in a home or something and not able to move. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm 44 years old. And right now in this moment, I've got 12,500 days of my life left. Now, up until that moment where I saw that figure, question I've been asking myself is, oh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life now my wife's gone and the business is changing? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I couldn't get an answer to it. It was quite an abstract question. But then when I saw this number on a piece of paper, my question changed to, what is most important that I do in the next 12,500 days? And I got a totally different set of answers. And on, on that list of answers, nowhere did it appear like further your career or do more of this businessy stuff it just wasn't even in the list and you touched on something as well maybe it was in australia where that was triggered you know when you had done the play uh, was it the uh, introduction to what bronnie Ware was talking about the five regrets of the dying all of these things were sort of coming together like almost like in a divine order <laughs> these things were just appearing in front of me and i needed them so when i read this book as i was searching for answers to my unanswerable questions um, the top five regrets of the dying, it really spoke to me because she said she'd interviewed over a thousand people in the last weeks of their life and they'd all expressed the same five regrets. And the most expressed one, the number one on the list was, I wished I'd lived my life true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. And when I heard that, I thought that that makes so much sense, but I have no bloody idea what living life true to myself looks like for me. I have no idea what that would be. So it certainly wasn't being a CEO of a business in London. I knew that. But now I was alone and coming out of the wreckage of the marriage that I'd lost and my dad dad being buried, etc. I thought, I need to discover what that looks like. So the idea then of taking a six-month sabbatical and traveling became exciting because it, it gave me the possibility, at least a remote possibility, that I might discover something new on that journey that would start to help me get a vision of what that life would look like. You've decided, company's closed, marriage has ended, life needs to change, even just for a little bit of time. So you said, six months will do me what I need to... So, so, so tell me what you did next. Yeah, so I, I set up with a couple of uh, associates, I set it up so that if any business inquiries came to the company, someone would deal with that while I was away. And... and and just luck, not luckily, I, I'd sort of, I'd started seeing a, somebody in London just before all this happened, a girl called Annie, who's in the book. And I knew she was going to Thailand because when I met her, she said, I'm going to move to Thailand. I love it there. And so I never, ever imagined that anything would happen between us. But 
I said, well, I hope you have a nice life there. And I went off to Australia to do the play. And then I came back and she hadn't left to go. She was still in London. I said, what are you doing here? She said, oh, I had some trouble, you know, with the apartment, renting it out. But now it's fixed and now I'm going. She said, by the way, you know, what the last few months I've been thinking about you a lot. I was just wondering if you'd be interested in coming to Thailand with me. And I was really shocked when she said that because I really, she'd originally said, I don't want to be in a relationship when I go to Thailand. I want to be completely unencumbered. So I was quite surprised and shocked. And she said, I'm just a bit worried that we don't know each other that well. And so I'm a bit nervous to ask, but I thought I'd put it out there. And I said, well, why don't, my house is up for sale now. Um, it's going to take three months to sell it. Why don't you move into the house with me for three months? And we'll find out rapidly if we're, going to work together or not and so she said yeah that's a good idea and she did and so after three months when i sold the house i went and joined her in thailand oh, i love that because one of the things bronnie war also said is that um i uh i think it was every male patient said that they had regretted that they'd worked so hard i wished i didn't hadn't worked so hard to get to the last stages of their life and they they have this regret and you had worked really hard up to this point and now you're putting a pause into your life i mean i'd read i don't know who wrote it but i'd read a book about someone had this theme of taking a part of your retirement early. So rather than waiting to the end of your working life, maybe take five or 10 years of it in the middle and then return to your working life. And I like, kind of like that idea. What felt really great was when I collapsed the material life I had in London, because obviously when I sold my house, which was a three-story house in West London, full of stuff that has spent thousands of pounds on acquiring over the years, I got rid of it all. Literally either sold it or gave it away. So I, I wanted a minute. I read this book by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus called The Minimalists. And they'd done this experiment in their home where they'd taken every single thing in their flat and put it into boxes. And then for one month, just taken out the boxes what they actually needed to use, like their toothbrush or a saucepan or a cup. And they realized that they only used about 2% of everything they had in their apartment. <laughs> and I read another book called Stuffocation by James Warman. And he was talking about the trends that were evolving in this era because a lot of millennials and younger people than me, they're not motivated what, what, what he calls material values based around materialism. Um, but younger people, they have an orientation around what he calls experientialism. Your value is based on what you've experienced and what you can experience and what you know from experience. And I was really compelled by that idea as well you know i thought I, that's that feels right to me i want to i want to use my life to experience a lot of things and then share those experiences with others for the purposes of learning you know enlightening people and serving people to find their real true path and so that was exciting to me as well fantastic there's also something very unique about you and your relationship with your dad because um to hear uh, a dad from your generation say you know you need to travel a bit more you need to take holidays that whole generation where from a, a whole era of hard work and certainly taking a break or deciding to go find yourself in you know the far east or the, wherever was an anathema to them and and simply you had to put your nose to the grind so it was it was very refreshing to hear something like what your dad had said to you when so many of that generation would have been the opposite yeah i think my dad was a very spirited person i mean he he had his own connection to the source and spirit. I, I didn't really fully understand it, but I could see he had that for sure. Brilliant. So how li I like, like we've touched on the idea of pause, and you, then you went to Thailand and uh, you did a Vipassana. Uh... Yeah, initially I was just deep, uh, uh, kind of unwinding, you know, because 
it felt weird to be every morning I got up, I had nowhere to go and no places to be or no one to meet. So I just used to go to the coffee shop, go down the beach, just hang out, talk to travelers. I, I felt like I was on this sort of huge long holiday that had no end. And um, I felt really guilty, actually, to be honest. I felt shameful, guilty. There was a big part of me going, Ray, you're such a loser. You know, you should be back in England making money and doing what everyone else is doing. You're, you're not paying any taxes or anything like this. You're escaping all that. You know, you're, you've, you're taking yourself out of the game. But, you know, and I, and I sort of felt guilty and shameful a bit. And I was agitated and I was worried about my future and going, yeah, it's all very nice today, drinking coffee on the beach. But whatever, where are you going to live? You know, how are you going to get money in the future? And how are you going to secure your life? And how are you going to blah, blah, blah? So I was just full of noise and anxiety in this lovely setting. On the surface, it looked great. But I was in turmoil on the inside and couldn't get any peace. And after about six months, I was telling this story to a traveler. And he said, you know, I think you should do a Vipassana retreat. I said, what? Vipassana? I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what meditation was. I had no idea. And he said, well, yeah, you go into a Buddhist monastery for 10 days and you sit with the monks in silence and you meditate and they teach you every day about the, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, and that'll change things for you, I think. It'll calm you down. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? You know, I'd never, I'd never been quiet for even 10 minutes, let alone 10 days. I thought I've got nothing to lose. So I decided to do that. And I think chapter four of the book I describe my whole experience of that retreat and what I what I took from it and how how it was, you know, because it was a life changing event for me. I left that monastery feeling so calm and so grounded and the noise in my head. It was like someone had turned the volume from a ten down to like a two or a three. And it was just amazing. I, I felt I felt really ready to continue the journey quietly then. God, I've heard so many people do the Vipassana retreats and sometimes get to day eight and just go, I I can't go on. Oh yeah, loads of people left. (laughs) There was a. I did it at Swan Mok in Thailand, which is an international Dharma center for travelers, and they got space for 120 people each month when they start the retreat, because they have um, accommodations included, and it's all by donation. It's a beautiful place, and it's fantastic to go there. So to get our place, you have to turn up the day before and register, and if you don't, you have to wait for the next one. So 120 people started, but by the end, there was only about half left. Some people leave after one day, some two. You know, every time you come to the meditation hall, you see empty cushions each day, getting the number of empty cushions getting bigger and bigger. Oh, they've gone, they've gone. I know one of the other things that you did after this was you created, or you might have even done it before this, but you created certain principles about your journey. Was it 10 core principles that you were going to travel through or travel yeah. by? Yeah, you know, it was through the meditation, I realized that I'd planned my journey of travel on the surface, like logistically, and I had my finances all managed under control and everything on the surface I'd sort of thought about and worked out. But I hadn't sort of given any thought to how do I manage my own psychology? You know, how do I manage my inner state in a time when I'm going to be experiencing a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear around things. What do I draw on to make myself safe in that inner journey? Because there's always two things going on in our lives, isn't there? There's the events that are happening at the surface, and then there's what, how we process it inwardly. And they're two quite different journeys, and they require two totally different forms of management. But I hadn't given any thought to the second until I did the Vipassana. I thought, 
wow, I need to set some guiding principles for myself. And so I came up with 10 and I wrote those in the book because they were really useful to me. So that like the guiding principle of presence, I thought, right, from now on, I'm going to, as much as I can, I'm going to stay in the present moment when I'm alive, you know, when I'm awake. And I'm going to, if I notice I'm my thoughts drifting off to the past of my life and beating myself up for being a crappy husband and all the failures I've done, which I was doing a lot. Um, or if I notice my thoughts wandering into the future, like how am I going to stop myself from being homeless when I'm 90 <laughs> or some, whatever it would be, you know, feel thoughts like that. Um, I thought, if that happens, I'm going to commit to bringing myself back to this moment that I'm in and fully being in the moment, giving my undivided attention to whoever I'm with and just focusing on what's actually going on right in front of me. So that was a guiding principle. Is, is there certain techniques that you use that allow you to bring yourself back to that present moment? Is it- yeah, that, I mean, you know, the best one for me was just to stop and take a couple of deep breaths. The breath is for me, one of the most powerful anchors to the present moment. But another example was self-acceptance. Because on this journey, one of the things that's really changed my life a lot is just learning to love myself as I am with all my flaws, with all the things I get wrong, and not and let go of the delusion that I was holding that ultimately or eventually I could become the perfect version of me if I just tried hard enough. You know, I was laboring under that delusion for years and years and years, and no one's ever going to get there. No one's ever perfect. You know, it's just impossible. You know, I I don't know how it is for you, but I've got a bit of me that's really critical of myself. It's really harsh. I'm much harsher on myself than anyone else. And I thought, I don't want to speak to myself like that. I thought if I lived in a flat with a guy or a girl who spoke to me in the way I speak to myself, I'd kick them out. I wouldn't want to live with them. And then I had others, you know, like frugality and modesty. Because I'd come from a very affluent life in London, but I'd always felt I'd been using money as a kind of statement that I'm important or I'm big or I'm a, I'm a somebody. So I was tossing money around as a statement, and I never felt good about that. I thought, no, money is a very valuable resource. I want to I make the best use of it I can. So if I need a place to stay, I want something that's basic and clean, but not ostentatious or not conspicuous. You're not not excessive and so i made sure i bought i stayed in very modest rooms and guest houses that were affordable you know spending five or six pounds a night on a room not a hundred pounds and i was completely happy doing that but you know so i had a principle around that and if i found myself thinking oh i I want to stay at this hotel i think do i really need to is that is that am i observing that principle of frugality and modesty am i am i doing that you know and i'll go back to the principle I had 10 of these. I mean, they're, I, still, I still apply most of them, even in my life today, because they all really work for me. But I think whoever would read my book and see those principles would, would not have the same ones. You'd have your own based on your needs and your journey. But it would, it would give you a kind of sense of what you could have. Yeah, because I think they're really they're really good sort of life principles. Certainly, that to live your life by. You talk about minimalism and connection. Like think about a contribution which which you certainly did when you started to run the marathons, and we we'll talk about that in a second. But you also had a you had to carry your stuff with you. So, like when you think about it, you couldn't carry around sixteen suitcases with all the stuff that you thought you might <laughs> yeah, need. Twenty two kilos of stuff for fifteen years, and that's it. How did you be so so tough on yourself and just decide? This is all I need, and I, 
I, I can't even because you couldn't even go into stores and buy buy things like souvenirs and stuff like that and go yeah this is this is beautiful because it's from this part of the world yeah I, I i couldn't because even if i had done i'd have nowhere to store them i mean i could just have my bag and my bag would have got very heavy so i i, I kind of liked i felt liberated to be honest i liked the lightness of just carrying exactly what i needed nothing more nothing less and weirdly enough at 22 kilos it's not very much it's about 10 or 11 kilos of clothes uh three or four kilos of a laptop and blah blah blah, blah. and then some, a couple of pairs of shoes and other bits and pieces came to about 22 kilos in total but weirdly enough i did at one point in my journey i, I walked the camino which is a pilgrimage that a lot of people are aware of and that took me six weeks but it, 22 kilos would have been way too much so i left my 22 kilos of stuff in in france and took a small bag with six kilos for six I lived for six weeks on six kilos on the Camino. So I realized that even in my 22 kilos, there were still things I was hardly using. How did you find that? Because for anybody who doesn't know what the Camino is, it's an 800 kilometer walk pretty much from the south of France or just the tip of France that touches into Spain all the way to the uh, the west coast of Spain. Yeah, I think if anyone's interested in that, then they'll find, I think, one of the chapters I wrote about my experience. And and I, I also wrote the 10 impacts that walking the Camino had had on me and the 10 things it had brought back to my memory of how how it affected life and and I I loved it I loved the fact that I started alone but every day I connected with fellow human beings also on a similar pilgrimage you know everyone walks the Camino generally has a question they're trying to answer or an issue they're trying to resolve or a burden they're trying to lighten everyone comes with something like that there's this fantastic communal spirit to it because every night when you need to bed down for the night, you stay in one of these municipal hostels and some of them have got sort of 100 or 200 bunk beds and they're all travellers and the places are all manned by volunteers. So the whole thing's like a, a beautiful kind of generous, you, you feel bathed in the generosity of people. I remember the first night I got to my alberish, my hostel, and I was travelling light with six kilos, so I didn't even have a sleeping bag or blankets or anything just decided to wing it and see if I could create blankets when I got to the place. And uh, I got to want the first place and there was only a rough blanket, like an army blanket, very scratchy, you know, not very comfortable on the skin. And the guy next to me saw I was having some discomfort and he just said, do you want to borrow the silk liner to my sleeping bag? You know, I'm okay. My sleeping bag is fine. You can borrow my silk liner, be more comfortable for you. And I, and I just struck me how, how kind and generous everybody was, you know, in, on that, in that context. There's a magic in it. There's, there's a serendipity. There, there's all of these different things that just synchronicity, all these things happen. I remember on a particular Sunday morning, I was walking out of Granon um, um, and just minding my own business. I think I had headphones in listening to some jazz music or something on a Sunday and as the sun was shining. And there was a guy walking beside me. And for no reason, he just stopped with his with his rucksack and he just looked at me and he had big headphones on and he had a headscarf or whatever on and he just looked at me and he just goes and he pulled his headphone off and he goes what, what's your name and i went oh, i'm steven and i went well what's yours and he goes eh, my name's uh, carlo and i went oh okay and we just got talking and he was from bologna in italy and i'm told my story in ireland and from that moment on we spent the next four and a half weeks walking beside each other all the way into santiago city now consequently that friends that i met that carlo that i met on that sunday morning i'm now 
dear friends with him now. I travel to Bologna quite regularly. We go climbing in hills around, uh, you know, around Italy. And uh, consequently, he runs a school in, in outside Bologna, uh, Castel de Briti, uh, which is a, like a vocational school. It's a Don Bosco school. And I've gone over there and I've um, delivered workshops I have for the staff and for the, uh, the students. And just to be able to do something like that from the magic of the Camino, it's quite incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So you did the Camino. You did also many other things. You went up into the Himalayas uh, too as well, right, at one stage? Yeah, I'd been always wanted to go to the Himalayas, especially to the Everest region. You know, it had been a dream of mine. And so when I was traveling with Annie, we both um, trekked the Annapurna circuit, which is one of the most famous treks in the world, I'd probably. Um, it was beautiful, you know, just really beautiful. Obviously cold, <laughs> minus 15 or 20 degrees most nights, but you got all the equipment you need to, to deal with that. And uh, and then that was in 2008, I did that. And then and then after I ran the New York Marathon, then I wanted to go back to Nepal to take some of the money I'd raised to an orphanage that I was supporting. Um, and I wasn't with Annie any longer at that point. So I went back and coincided my trip to Nepal so I could trek to the Everest base camp in the right season because, you know, the weather makes trekking fit into smaller windows in the year. You can't do it all year round. And so I went April, May, did the Everest base camp trek and then went on to the orphanage to give the money over that I raised. Brilliant. I want to go back to that because I find that really interesting. So you'd left the world of work behind, the world of, um, you know, working for profits, the good lifestyle. And then one of the things that you decided to give was to be able to contribution was to give back. That was one of your guiding principles. And you and you did that. And you did it in the form of taking on challenges that you hadn't done before. And marathons were that. Yeah, it, it came about gradually. I don't, you know, I've got to say, I'm not a, I never saw myself as a philanthropist as such. But I remember thinking often when I was a businessman, uh, and doing that full time, I was thinking sometimes, you know, one day I'd like to take some time out and go and help others, you know, or, or use what I've learned and some of the money that's been made to support causes that really need help or something. And I just had the thought and then let it go. And I never really did anything about it. But then in this journey, just as a tourist and as a traveler, I was seeing, I was encountering places and people that were touching my heart. And, uh, one of them was the Elephant Nature Park that I'd been to in Changdao in Thailand, where a, an amazing woman called Lek Chalert had created a wild but safe home for elephants that had stepped on landmines or were being beaten by their owners and stuff like that and give they, gave them a life like they were much more used to in the wild. Another was an orphanage in Nepal, which a fellow traveler had said to me, if you go to Nepal, would you go and do something for these kids at the orphanage? I volunteered there and they're amazing. There were 60 kids, all beautiful Nepali kids. So I went there and did organize a picnic. It cost $20 to organize a picnic for these 60 kids. Spent the whole day with them and they laughed and danced and joked, and they loved it. And I thought, so every time I was encountering these places and I'm realizing they had virtually no money, I thought, what could I do? You know, how could I help them? I never answered the question, but I just remember thinking a lot as I was traveling. I really want, I've got time, I've got expertise, I could do something to help, just don't know what. And then uh, as I was having those thoughts, it was, it was around about 2008, I met a guy called Matt Campbell, just randomly with his wife, they were living out in Asia. And I said, tell me about your life. And he said, well, I, I do this. And 
he was a marathon runner. He'd run six marathons. He was 10 years younger than me. But And I said, I said, tell me, what's it like running a marathon? And when he described it, I, thought, oh, I could feel the excitement in my body as he was talking about it. I thought, oh, that would be great. I said, Matt, do you think I could run a marathon? I've been trying to think of something I could do to raise money for these things that I'm seeing. He looked at me and he said, well, you look sort of quite fit. Um, yeah, probably. He said, but, you know, it takes you have to train for it properly. He said, why do you want to do it? And I said, well, to raise money for these things. He said, okay, well, uh, because of that then, if you stay in Chiang Mai for six months, I'll, I'll train you how to run a marathon. And he became my coach. And that's what I did. And I agreed and accepted, shook hands and said, a year later, I was came back and started training with him and started the fundraising foundation at the same time. And for the first marathon, which I did, was I did it in New York. In, and so I applied. I put myself in the ballot. I was thinking, I'll be lucky if I get a place in the ballot. First time I got a place. Literally, I, mean, I couldn't believe it. I knew that the universe was looking after me then because I got a place. So I went to New York, ran, ran the marathon. And that gave rise to a great story in the book because my brother flew me there on British Airways and um, raised $15,000 for the Elephant Nature Park, for the Orphanage in the Power, and for a cancer charity that I was supporting. I know, it's fantastic. Yeah, no, you know, because you've actually raised over 50,000. Yeah, that's right. I, I ran five marathons. Not all of them were fundraisers, but uh, some of them were. Oh, which is absolutely incredible. I can't even imagine the thought of uh, running a marathon, Ray. Well, a lot of people say that, but the honest truth is, if you do the training correctly, running, running the marathon is actually quite easy. It's the training that's the hard part, because... It requires a commitment to five months and a schedule and a discipline. But if you if you complete that, you're deaf. You run about eight hundred miles in your training, so so running twenty six miles is easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you think of it, when you put it that way, yeah, great. The other thing um, I also. Uh, recognize that you've done in the book and something i'd looked at for a number of years was and you don't need to go into too much detail about the process involves but the hoffman process and your journey pretty much was a, a journey of self-discovery for yourself like when your introduction to meditation you know the new ways of living new worlds uh, new countries to and cultures to experience what was the hoffman process like and what's involved yeah as i as i was described in the book you know i i kept hearing about this thing for years and years people had mentioned it to me over the years and i thought every time i'd heard i thought yeah that's i don't need i don't mind interested in that but i could see from how i was behaving in my relationships with my partners like annie and especially when i was married too i could see that i had one or two patterns deeply embedded patterns that were quite destructive and i couldn't see a way of changing them or releasing myself from them and Annie had given me a book while we were traveling called Undefended Love. And I read that book and it was like embarrassing because oh, the women who wrote it, two psychiatrists, were, were describing how men particularly are very armored up, very protected, impenetrable emotionally, couldn't receive or take on any feedback or, or criticism. And I thought, oh, my God, that's me. That's me. That's so me. I really wanted to find a way to pierce and remove that armor for myself. So I could be emotionally vulnerable and have access to be able to give and receive love, which I couldn't fully. And so I went on a two-day workshop with those two women who wrote that book. And at the end of it, I was felt already could feel the change. And I said to them, I've got to go back to Thailand now. It was this, I went to the workshop in America. And I said, how am I going to support myself to continue the work on this journey? And, because I won't be anywhere near you two. I won't be able to see you or anything. They said, well, let's think about that. And I came back a couple of days later and said, 
we think you should do this thing called the Hoffman process. This is really good work for you to do. And then as I was thinking about that, I had to go through London and I met an old friend who was a bit of a womanizer, if I could describe him crudely. And, you know, not, not someone I was totally inspired by. And I met him that particular time. He, he stood up and greeted me and gave me a hug. And he'd never done that in the four years I'd known him. It was really unusual. And when I asked him how he was, he answered in terms of spoke from his emotion and said how he felt. And then he never did that either. And I said, Are you, what's happened to you? Because I saw you like a year or two ago and you, you, you seem quite different. He said, oh, I don't know, Ray. I, I'm not sure anything much has changed, but I, I did this thing called the Hoffman process six months ago and it's really shaken me up. And I thought, wow, I could really feel and see the difference in him. And I thought, wow, if I could just even have some of that, I want it. So I signed up and did the process literally the, the next two weeks later. And it, it, it had a huge impact on me. I've, I've detailed that. I've, I, I shared my very personal vision in the book, what came out of the process for me. That's, that's incredible. And I love the way that you, you, you from, from taking the journey, you almost went there with an intention on, you know, first setting out and all these different people fell into your lives and all these little signals felt and told you you're on the right journey, Ray. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was always waiting for what I call in the book confirmation signals, because I learned this when I was a pilot, you know, I mean, I've got to fly, I used to fly airplanes when I was a businessman. And when you're flying an airplane, you're using navigational aids in the cockpit and you're tuning your instrument to a beacon. So if I want to fly to Dublin, Dublin has a thing on the ground, usually right by the airport, called a beacon, a VOR beacon. And, it's, and it emits a certain radio frequency in every direction, omnidirectional. And so in, in London, you, you, you select the Dublin beacon on your instrument, whatever frequency that is. And then the needle in the cockpit starts pointing towards it and you just fly down the needle and you get to Dublin Beacon. However, if by chance you chose by mistake the beacon in Southampton in England instead of the one in Dublin because there's one digit difference, you'd be flying accurately down the needle but to the wrong place. So there has to be a secondary confirmation signal that you've chosen the right beacon. So Dublin, every beacon has a Morse code, audible Morse code signal. When you press the button, and you get this, and every signal for each beacon is unique. So if you you know what the signal is you're listening for, and when you hear it, you go, okay, it's, conf it's confirmed. I've got the right one. And so I use that principle in life. Fantastic. Because there's a really lovely bit in the book, and it's, as an Irishman here talking to you, what were you thinking when you decided that Camembert and Bailey's would actually go together? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I don't think I'll ever sort of stop telling that story. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a foodie. I'm totally not a foodie. I mean, I'll probably make the worst combinations in sandwiches and things you can imagine. But I remember when I went to the Caribbean to meet this lovely exotic French lady who I'd bumped into on my travels and she'd invited me for a sort of romantic exploration, let's say, in the Caribbean. We, we'd been out for dinner early that evening and i was getting quite hungry as, a, as the evening wore on and i said i'm going to go to the kitchen and make myself a snack and i had brought some camembert cheese and i had a bit of my bailey's irish cream left on my trip and i said she said what are you going to have i said i'm just going to have some camembert and, and biscuits and now i'm going to finish off my bailey's and she just her, her jaw dropped and she went s stony silent and 
I said, what's up with you? Because it, it's as if I'd sort of strangled her cat or something. You know, I she was really shocked. She said, Camembert and Baileys? Camembert and Baileys? You moron, you ignorant moron. What the hell are you thinking? You know, in a lovely French accent. And uh, I realized that uh, she was a foodie and she had this massive fantasy before I'd arrived about us two cooking together and tasting together. And this was, this was evidence that I was not qualified for that role. And I was shattering that fantasy, you know, there and then. But it was probably a good way for the universe to tell us sometimes that maybe the path that we thought we, sh- we were on is probably not the path we should be on and maybe we need to eg- exit stage left. Exactly. And I built up this fantasy of seeing her for a year. And I was there just like a week and then it was over and I was gone. <laughs> it was very short-lived. So, so incredibly, how many, how many countries did you visit? Uh, in total, 28. Yeah, but some were only for a few days. I mean, I did, you know, some I lived in. Like I lived in Thailand. I lived in Poland, in Warsaw for three years. I lived in Spain for a few months. And what ones were the most indelible? For, what ones left the biggest imprint on you? Well, India's one of them. I mean, you know, India's this, God, you could, I could talk forever about it. I'm sure other people who've been there will say it's sort of, it's the most chaotic and charming country on, on earth, I think. You know, it's got so many dimensions to it. It's packed. It's full of very lovely, heart-shining people with lots of poverty, but there's a richness in the, in the experience of being there that, you don't get in any other country. There's a lot of joy and happiness below the superficial poverty that you experience everywhere. That's one of the countries that make, made a really powerful impression on me, India, and made me think a lot about what we really need in life, where joy and happiness really comes from. It's not from stuff. Um, and then obviously the Himalayas and Nepal. I went to Australia, spent a lot of time traveling around Australia. It's pretty spectacular. New Zealand. New Zealand, I call it the heavens guarded on earth new zealand is just aesthetically beautiful i also find a really interesting bit of your book too as well when you talk about arriving into uh, western australia to perth and you went on the is it nora Nuremberg highway is it that brings you to adelaide oh yeah yeah we me and annie we'd we'd heard a lot of people talking about crossing the nullarbor the nullarbor is this sort of two thousand kilometer you know australia is really a country it's massive but everyone lives around the edges in the middle of Australia is very unpopulated because it's dry, arid desert, most of it. But, you know, I thought I'd seen Crocodile Dundee and things like this. And I thought the idea of driving 2,000 kilometers across the Nullarbor uh, and dry, sandy desert of Australia really appealed to me for some reason, and Annie too. And there were certain points, like there's the Great Bight, which is the coastline on South Australia. And you could stop there and you could sort of stand at the edge of the cliffs. And in the ocean, you can see like these massive schools of dolphins surfacing and breaching the water and this beautiful, you know, just unbelievably beautiful nature experience doing things like that. One of the things that's like you, you, you came across on your journey is you came up with six rules of happiness. Uh, I don't know if you remember what they are. Like, Yeah, I, di- I didn't, to be honest. I, I, when I was writing the book and I was working with my editors who were, were helping me all the way through, they suggested that I should dedicate the last chapter of the book to some reflection backwards on the whole journey. And so as I was reflecting back on the journey, I thought, what would my rules for happiness be if I were to articulate them? And I came up with these six rules 
as a as an afterthought, as a as a way of reflecting. So they, for me, they they just embraced everything I'd learned from the fourteen year journey, and they were things like building a strong foundation inside yourself, a core strength in mentally is one of my six rules because I'd learned from running marathons that you know when you're training for a marathon, you have to do train on your core first because it affects the rest of your training and how you perform. And core mental strength is knowing about what are your values, you know, what are your, what's your purpose for being on earth, you know, what's your vision, uh, when are you in your element, as Sir Ken Robinson calls it, when your strengths, what you're really good at, and what you're passionate about, what you really care about, where these two things intersect. And then the second one was things like um, take full ownership for what happens, you know, I'd been through a lot of blame and stuff like that when I got told I wasn't going to be married any longer. Um, But I realized I'd played a massive part in that event happening. You know, like I hadn't owned it, but I had now the opportunity through the journey to take ownership for everything. And I think you can be much happier when you do that because your happiness is not dependent on the behavior or, or decisions of other people. Brilliant. Yeah. And you have become your own observer, create powerful, purposeful and sustainable relationships, pay attention to your health, which is really important, not just your physical, but all your mental and, and emotional health too, and empower and support others. I love that. So just coming to the point of where you actually got back onto terra firma, not back onto terra firma, but back to the sort of the stage where you went for six months, you ended up doing 14 years of travel. So what was the catalyst that brought you back to home again? And how has that been? Yeah, well, spoiler alert, this is the last chapter of the book. Uh, I had, towards the end of my journey, fallen into a relationship with a Polish woman called Dorota. And I'd moved to Warsaw in Poland so we could live together in an apartment and have a sort of a kind of more of a regular life there. And eventually that relationship came to an end in the middle of, or in the early part of 2019, March, April 2019. And uh, I was then living in a tiny little one-bedroom apartment on my own in Warsaw, sitting there thinking, how did I end up here? You know, like after this amazing journey, here I am alone, sad. My my part, uh, my former partner uh, stonewalled me, refused to talk to me beyond the end of our relationship. So I was not able to connect with her, thinking, what do I do now? I've got nowhere to return to. I've got no home in England. I sold my house in London. I've got no property, no possessions. You know, where do I go? I don't want to stay in Warsaw. I felt like a fish out of water. And so I used to just sit with my meditation and and, and wait for guidance, you know, in, in, my, in my inner wisdom. And I just kept hearing a voice, you know, Ray, I think you should go back to England and finish writing the book. And that was kept hearing that message consistently. Just go back to England and finish writing the book. Worry about anything else after that. But the next thing, get the book written. That's what's important. And uh, by chance, and this story is in the book, I'd run the Brighton Half Marathon with a guy I'd been coaching who decided to take on a physical challenge. And it doesn't sound that remarkable, but because this chap has born with motor neurons disease and has disabilities, for him to say, he wanted to run a half marathon was like, wow. So I said, I'd like to run that with you to support you all the way around if you're going to do that. And he did. He signed up to run the Brighton Half Marathon. So I flew over from Spain where I was living and I ran this event with him. But then I saw Brighton because I had to go there to run this race. And I thought, oh, Brighton looks quite nice. And so I reached out to a friend of mine in Findhorn, Scotland, 
I said, do you know anyone in Brighton who might have a spare room in a house? She said, actually, I do. A friend of mine's just moved there. Let me get in touch. And I met her and I moved into the house and uh, I just chose Brighton randomly. It just seemed like an inspired choice. But that was a confirmation signal that she knew someone and that person said, yeah, I'd be happy to have you here. And it was effortless. I love the way you're getting all these signals from left, right and center. So what is, what, what, what is working life like now for you, Ray? Uh, at the moment, my, my working life is two comprises of two things. Uh, one is I work as a leadership coach. So I'm constantly uh, engaged with people that are running parts of businesses or managing teams and leading and who want to be exceptional leaders. And I, I work as an associate for a couple of organizations that are at the leading edge of that kind of work. And I'm very fortunate to be in those organizations. I meet some really interesting clients and I get to do a lot of coaching one-to-one, which is my favorite thing, and uh, participate in some workshops where we do coaching in groups. So I'm I'm doing that on a regular basis and I have done for the last three or four years, in fact. I think you've got the the most amazing journey because most of us think like, you know, what we think of work is that we, it's birth, school, work, death. We work long hours in, in work till the time we get a chance possibly to retire and then we sort of fade away into the background or whatever you've turned that on its head and i love the way you went for six months and stayed for 14 years and you've come back and you've got this brilliant story which is wonderful in the book i'd ask anybody uh, to pick up a copy of the book life without a tie and read it but also um the story that you've got to share now with business leaders that life doesn't need to be the way we thought it should be and that there is another path and you're not telling everybody that 14 years away is what they need to do but that that pause in life is 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 one of the things that's most important to us yeah i'm not advocating at all the life of a traveler that's absolutely not my message i've got fr- i've got one friend who's the ceo of a, of a water utility in england that's what she always dreamed about that's her passion she's living her life true to herself and she's the ceo of a public company so the form of your life is going to be different. My, my message is stop living the life that others expect of you and start living the life you want to live. Now, if that happens to be as a corporate executive, fantastic. If that's truly what you truly want. But if you're doing it for other reasons, then perhaps it's time to reconsider because we need a world in which people are energetically living in alignment with what's honest and true. It is such a breath of fresh air to be able to talk to uh, somebody who has done exactly what we all fear doing. And what we all work ourselves towards is creating a successful life, that successful company, you know, all the uh, surroundings that come from that. But to be able to to jump off a cliff and suddenly hand all that back or, or step away from that and suddenly go into the unknown by putting a 22 kilo backpack and then heading off and not know what's going to happen next and thinking in your mind this is going to be for six months then i'll come home and i'll restart again or reignite what i've been doing but not return back for 14 years is quite incredible the book life without a tie is a must read it's a fantastic adventure Uh, you'll feel really really nervous in some of the parts because ray's been very honest about how he felt and where his adventure brought him and, and what he did i think more of us need to think about specifically in the world of leadership how can we sometimes just take those pauses and how long should they be for and and, and what do we gain from them because i think there's a lot to be able to gain from just stopping sometimes i and i don't think we do enough of those moments of pause reflection and stopping i hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as i did having the conversation with ray that was wonderful 